you're listening to Adoption, Fostering and Tea from the UK's LGBT plus adoption and fostering charity, New Family Social. Find us at newfamilysocial.org.uk. I'm Tor and this week I'm going to be having a cup of tea with Lynn and talking about adopting before the law changed which allowed couples to adopt and that can be followed by questions from our audience. Hi Lynn, how are you? I'm very well, Tor. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. So you adopted ages ago. I think you get some sort of certificate for that. Can you tell me a bit about when it was and how it came about and how it all started for you? Uh, sure. So I think, um, as many other couples do, just in, in my relationship with my partner, Emma, we just got to that stage where we thought we would like to uh, look into having kids. At the time, didn't really know anything about adoption or fostering so we were sort of open to to both but and say so that was back in 2003 so we got in touch uh, with our local council at the time and just said can you come and talk to us uh, and they did and um, I think the, you know the first question that, that we didn't know because we knew very little about it and we were actually at the time we weren't even sure if we could that was our first question is can can we come and talk to someone about doing this but they did come along and um put it very helpfully and simply to us where they sort of said well would you like a job or would you like a family and we said no very much like a family Mm -hmm. and they just said well I think you'll probably find adoption um, is more for you because it's obviously permanent Uh, and again you know fostering obviously is an amazing job it's not not just a job it's an amazing kind of vocation but yeah so they very quickly said to us yeah you should look into adoption and uh, and we took it from there and went off on the uh, you know the familiar sort of initial workshop and sort of started on our journey at that point because I guess it's worth making the point that back then unmarried couples weren't legally allowed to both adopt and so although it was a 2002 act of parliament that changed Mm -hmm. that it wasn't enforced at the time you started this how did you between you talk about who would become the legal parent and who would be the other adult assessed in the household but with no legal link so we went through as you say one of us was sort of officially on the paperwork but the entire process that we went through with our social worker was done with both of us so as far as we were concerned at the time it was more a formality it wasn't a sort of big issue and I think you know we were expecting or hoping that obviously say the the it had come up in 2002 and although it hadn't gone through yet I think there was every hope that it would go through and as it turned out by the time we did adopt uh, it then had come in to law and so when we did actually the final paperwork it was actually for both of us but when we decided on doing that we also talked about uh, surnames that we would have for our adoptive child. So we kind of divided up in that one of us said, well, they can have one of our surname and then the other person can be on the on the documentation. So we sort of divided it up that way, if you like. If that made sense. That. But, yeah. But yeah, but when it when it came to it, we actually were both on the paperwork because the law did change um, when when we uh, did adopt Stephen. But we did the exact same because my first two children I gave birth to and back then Jackie didn't have a legal link to them. And so we did that exact same thing of I knew that I had a legal link to them, which gave me 
status, rights, responsibilities, all of that. But she did not. But we thought if they had her surname, it yeah. meant that she could present at appointments and things and would be a lot less likely to be asked who she was, what she was doing. And that kind of worked. And actually, even now, it's much more often that I'm quizzed on who on earth I am. That's rather than, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, that's a very good point. So, so you applied and went through that process. I mean, now it's much more common that agencies are aware, and particularly for lesbian and gay people, perhaps less aware for bisexual and trans people. But I guess back then they just weren't, perhaps one or two were. But what was your experience of the interactions that you had? I mean, we were put together with a social worker who was very good. And I think they they knew, in a, in a way, they knew more. I mean, we, we were somewhat naive when we went into the process and didn't really appreciate the full sort of newness of it because our social worker didn't really question that didn't sort of raise that just said right I'm here I'm here to be your social worker I'm going to take you through the process um, I think at that time say what we actually didn't realize is that she had never taken a gay couple through that process before <laughs> but she was fine and and took us through it I think we also realized in hindsight she was particularly thorough right. because I think she knew that she wanted to make a a very robust case for the approval panel so i think she didn't want any holes to be to be brought up in terms of what we had gone through or covered so we yeah we will we were grilled quite thoroughly but on the other hand at, at that point we were quite happy to be grilled quite thoroughly because obviously it's a big thing to go into so so yeah so we, yeah we just went went through it but they did spend they spent a lot of time with us they also met both our parents. They also met uh, a number of friends. We were also um, asked if we would go and visit some nursery schools and spend time in some nursery schools, being amongst small children, um, even though both of us had nieces and nephews who were, who were small, so we had been around small children. So they, they did do sort of everything that they could to, to make sure that we sort of had a robust case. Um, as uh, when we went through it's interesting you say that because again sometimes we hear from people who are going through a seemingly perhaps excessively robust assessment mm. and I think sometimes it can be prejudice in the mind of the assessing social worker mm. but other times as in what you you're describing now it's almost a protective action on behalf of the assessing social worker because they know from professional experience what might come up at panel, what might come up at family finding. Yeah. And I think sometimes they're covering all bases in order to help your process. But I think at the time that can really feel quite intrusive. Yes, and, and I can understand that that perspective. And and obviously I think it, it can be difficult to know. I mean, we, we got on well with our social worker. So we basically did say to her at the time you do whatever you need to do to to ask us so we we just said yes to everything but yes I can see as well where having that degree of sort of questioning so for us for example because we did have some experience with younger children that but then being asked to go to a, a sort of nursery we I, I I do recall at the time we were sort of like well we don't necessarily need to do this we do know what it's what it's like to be around small children how challenging they can be but we also just said well that's fine whatever you need to do to put us through the process and to and to get us through it so I think it is is difficult I mean certainly when I've spoken to other people 
um, I think sometimes they can just, you know, be a, a judgment made with who you're working with. We certainly had a very experienced social worker, so we did, I think, trust her in that sense. Um, and, and we had a degree of rapport with her in terms of doing that. I think when I have um, spoken to other people who feel that maybe they're working with a less experienced social worker and the number of questions that are coming at them are because they maybe don't know so much about what they're doing and so they're covering bases because of their inexperience. I think that can be very frustrating. Yeah, we hear that from people sometimes. So people will ring and say, or sometimes social workers will ring and say, um, you know, I need to cover this, I need to cover that, I need to explain why this, why that. And we are sometimes saying to them, if you have concluded that this is not an issue, can it be left out? Does it have to go in? Mm. Um, particularly if it's kind of personal but not relevant. And I think it takes quite a confident professional to say, I have looked at this, decided it isn't relevant for the paperwork, and I'm leaving it. And I can understand in a climate of blame and so on why they might feel that everything's got to go in. But I think that thoroughness, you know, can, especially if it is concluded that the thing isn't relevant anyway, that thoroughness can be a little bit exhausting at points. Yes, yes. So when you went to panel, how were you received there? Again, it was... So again, I mean, it was quite a few years ago now. So in 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 from memory, it, it was we were we were welcomed. I mean, obviously, we were very nervous. Yeah. I think as everybody is going in, we were asked various questions. I mean, I do recall one of the questions that we were asked about being two women was that you know if we ended up with a boy, which we did, mm. then you know boys boys need dads and you know how how would we kind of fill that that side of 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 life for a for a young boy and I mean my answer at the time which I would still sort of say it's like well I think you know again I I would like to think some things have changed for the better now and as you say it's not so unusual to actually go in uh, to adoption panels or the adoption process as a gay couple so they're more used to it but um, at the time, yeah, I did sort of say to them, well, you know, I think there's two sides to that. I mean, certainly in terms of doing every day, if you like, what might be seen as dad things, but but are less so these days. So, you know, we are perfectly capable and have, you know, taken Stephen down the park to kick a ball about and, you know, fixed punctures on his bikes and all those sort of things that, that might previously or might still sometimes be construed as more dad things so in terms of those things I have no you know, there are no problems we can do those things that's that's not a problem and, and the same thing I would imagine also for for you know two dads two dads can do mum things if you like in, in that uh, kind of scenario but we were also clear that obviously there are some things as two women that we don't have experience of so you know when Stephen gets to the age of shaving or his voice is changing or he's got you know having experience of again what it is like to be a male amongst other men when women aren't around you know we we can't have experience of that and don't have experience of that but we do have a very wide circle of male friends and family members and so they are part of the family that we brought Stephen into 
and and you know we were also very clear with some of them um, particularly when we were going through the adoption process and did sort of say to them you know you know will you as and when we kind of need you if we have a, a boy um, then will you come in and you know and be that sort of male influence and be around for those types of things um and of course you know they all sort of said yes and and equally as well i think that's also true of girls as well i mean you know, girls need you know good male influences around them um so that was one question say at the time that we got i don't know if that would be a question so much today i think because i think things have changed for the better I think you're right, they've changed for the better, but it absolutely still is a question. It's almost so common that it's a cliched question. Um, okay. Still a panel, what will you do about male or female role models? And it tends not to be phrased as a question about what will you do about a variety of gender role models? What will you do about gendered expectations mm-hmm. or any of those things? It's very much, you know, I'm reading you as female, do you have any male role models? Or I'm reading you as male, do you have any female role models? And that's it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I recognise that those questions, I recognise that response, really. Um, I think one of the things that I've wondered about as my kids get older, um, my eldest is now 15, is I don't have experience of that pressure to perform a masculinity that I think boys and men have. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I see those pressures around and wonder what advice to give, what, what modelling to do. And again, we have friends of all genders but in the household we don't have that and that's that sort of toxic masculinity thing and also just kind of pressure to perform masculinity or process things in a in quotes masculine way so like mental health difficulties don't seek help because you know you might it it might damage your masculinity all that sort of stuff it's it's really nuanced and I have experienced as a woman of sexism and so on, I get what that feels like, but not yeah. from that side of the fence. And sometimes the things that you can give a good answer to a panel, like what would you do with a boy? Sometimes later in parenting, you're kind of thinking, actually there is a significant gap in my knowledge here. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And I think it is, it is very interesting. And, and, and again, we're very open with Stephen and we do say to him, you know, obviously he also benefits from having, two women in the in the house in different ways and so we often joke with him that yeah because uh Emma and I are quite open and we'll talk about lots of things then we openly talk to him about things uh, about you know whether or not he, his own relationships or again making him or not say making him or forcing him but you know getting him to talk about his feelings or his emotions because we openly talk about them so in some respects then he gets that from us and but yes, you know, dealing with that and certainly in, in other areas of his life as well uh, with having, you know, male influence around. I mean, we certainly found that when, again, you know, at the time, certainly most of the social workers that Stephen had had experience with were women. A lot of the teachers at school, particularly at infants and junior school, uh, were women. Uh, when he's needed any extra support or counselling, then they tend to be more women. So it's also it's it can be you know harder to find men to put around him sometimes, which you know we we've you know will seek out as well when we can. Yeah, I recognise that as well. It's um, there is a whole infrastructure, and it is female dominated all of these professions, mm-hmm. and so you're right that those role models are not always very accessible in those roles so yeah I I get that completely 
So you were matched with your son and he came to you at how old? He was nearly six when he came to us. And I'm interested in whether or not at the time, because you were so pioneering in what you did, you know, given that people still sometimes face problems today, I can't really imagine if you go minus 17 years back from now and then attempt this. I wonder whether you felt that you were considered for a full range of children or whether you hit that barrier that people sometimes talk about, that they were considered for a narrower range of children and that they feel that that is due to their sexual orientation. Uh, yes, and th- that that did get talked about in conversations and I think uh, it was, you know, almost known explicitly, really, that, you know, when we were making inquiries about children we knew if you like that we were never going to be considered for and uh, and, and obviously there's a sort of you know a delicacy in sort of putting this language but we we knew that we were never going to be the top of the list for yes. the people making the matches you know and 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 I'm sure again although things have changed I'm sure that is probably still the case today and I think that will probably also be true of people adopting as uh, single parents or again as older uh, people as well I think you know there there is there is a, a, a hierarchy uh, whether you know that's said explicitly obviously or, or not as it is um, and we were pointed out that if we were prepared to take children that were harder to place we would have a, a better chance of getting matched and that was something that that we certainly challenged and said, you know, we we could hear that. But at the same time, we were not prepared to take on levels of difficulty that we didn't actually feel that we would be able to cope with because we didn't feel that that would be fair to us or fair to the child or felt fair to anyone. So I think it's a, it's a very it's a very difficult area. But I think when you go through, you know, considering what type of child you might want to take on uh, in terms of ages and, and, and the issues that they may or may not come with, it, I think it is very important not to be pushed in a direction where you feel that you should take on issues that you may be, you know, that you, you don't necessarily feel equipped for. Because obviously, you know, that's a very serious thing to do. Um, and we also felt at the time in terms of, you know, doing that, that Again, we're very fortunate. We both do have uh, families that are quite local to us as well. And we knew that there would be a sort of network of family support around us in, in terms of uh, helping us uh, with with Stephen, whether that's, you know, babysitting or other things. Um, and we also therefore knew that, you know, if if we dealt with certain levels of difficulty, that may mean that some of our support network wouldn't be able to help us in the same way. Yes. So it, it yeah it is I think it, it, uh, I would imagine that still happens and it, it is absolutely there but I think you do have to sort of stand your ground on what you genuinely feel that you are able to take on. I think it happens on two sides of a coin if you like and I think even now some people feel that they are not being considered for a full range of children and range of needs and situations and so on and they feel that they're Um, choices being limited and other people limit themselves so they will say well of course what we wanted was x but we never thought we'd be considered for that so what we went for was y 
and um, so it's sometimes difficult to know what the chicken and egg of that situation is right now whether as a community we are saying well I would have liked parenting to look like this for me but I didn't think that was possible therefore yeah, therefore I asked for this or whether actually people are saying I would consider a wide range of children and they are being sort of encouraged into certain levels of need and levels of complexity out of a sense of discrimination and so on so it, it sort of happens in both ways now so your child is now in their early 20s incredibly yeah (laughs) I can't imagine so tell me how it's been and particularly give me top tips on how you get through the teenage years (laughs) (laughs) well yes yes no I mean he's he's not a child anymore we have a a young man in the house he's again he's a lovely young man which is absolutely fantastic tips to get through things I mean again I mean I would say certainly at the moment Stephen's at a great great period in his life actually and particularly during you know lockdown it it we we the three of us commented on the fact that it was it was actually very nice for the three of us to have time in the house together uh, so he's in a he's in a good place at the moment and that's great but yes we have had other periods of time where that's not been the case um, and it's been a lot harder and he's not been in in such great places he he sees a counsellor uh, regularly now and and she's very good and and he's responded very well to that which is fantastic so yeah it, i mean it is it is an ongoing journey you know with with adopting a child and and supporting them depending obviously on on the issues that they that they come with and the, and the needs that they have and so it is a, a sort of up and down roller coaster along the way. I think some of the um, some of the things that we didn't necessarily realise when we first adopted, and in hindsight we can look back and see, is that it can be difficult going through schools and working with teachers. Stephen did get support at school, which was great, but it did then mean that yeah we had to deal with a lot of different support workers and a lot of different uh, sort of teaching assistants and and uh, senkos and things like that, and they vary a great deal in their knowledge of working with uh, adoptive children, and again they haven't necessarily ever met a great deal of uh, gay adopters and so they then potentially come with their own assumptions or potentially prejudices and just levels of experience with that so I think you you do have to and we, and we kind of got used to that and understood that more as we went through it but you do have to be prepared every time you meet a new teacher or you go join a new school that you've got to sit down with those people and then work out uh, where they are in the again in their levels of experience and support and and if you can work with them positively or if it's going to be a bit of a battle yeah i yeah i i understand that completely it's um it is an ongoing thing and you do have to keep doing it over and over and over again yeah. and like you say sometimes you meet people who are very understanding of lgbt of adoption of all of those things and other times you don't, and that's harder. You know, I had a teacher tell me that she fully understood adoption because her husband was adopted in the 1950s. Yeah. And I thought, well, okay, on one, in one sense, great, but actually the adoption world was very, very different back then. Mm-hmm. And this sort of assumed, you know, no, I'm sure I do know everything. There's nothing for me to learn. Is actually you've got to turn it round to I don't know anything before you then start going, here's some actual knowledge. It's quite a hard thing to turn. 
yeah it is absolutely and i think as well then which i you know i'm sure is true across anyone who's who's adopted also people using those very common phrases well you know we oh we we've we've worked with all different types of children you know don't um don't worry about it we can handle this but again their actual genuine experience of working with adopted kids or or kids from a care system isn't actually very experienced at all but they're making a lot of assumptions so again we've had to sort of slightly bite our tongue in in some situations and and you've got to try and work with people and i think as well again which i'm sure you've seen you know when you are working also with people who are experienced they also tend to know how to cue a sort of a situation where where ultimately where Stephen gets what he needs whereas you can find yourself sitting across from people in in meetings in in schools or in in other situations where they just will basically say well this this is what we can do and we can't flex that and it becomes very narrow and obviously what any kind of parent wants is is that they want the thing that their their child needs in that situation that's best for them and you don't always get that flexibility Um, and certainly yeah when it comes to having backed up knowledge about you know attachment or developmental delays or or things like that um, sometimes um, yeah you 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 really do feel like you're not necessarily getting any support from the people who are supposed to be there supporting you (laughs) but uh, you know and and yeah you you have to see what happens but when you do get people who are really good it's an absolute joy and it's a it's such a relief um, and we have had you know people who who are really good along the way as well as, as some of those that you you just have to try and work around yeah I agree with you I mean we've had support that's been amazing we've had support that's been rubbish and um it's yeah it's, it's a mixture of all those things but like you say when you find somebody really good they'll sometimes just say a sentence and you're like oh that helps loads okay good let's work with that and it's just that they get it and they've got something to add um and other times it feels like they don't get it and haven't got anything to add and so yeah it's um it's fun <laughs> it is, it is. And, I, and i think it, you know it's also that thing we say i think it's, it's true for any parent really but you know we have to sit across in various meetings over you know Stephen's childhood and you just have to remember that you know you, you are the you are the parent in that scenario so we are the ones that actually had the entire vested interest about across Stephen's life whereas every uh, teacher or support worker or person who's you know come in because there is a, a piece of support that's for a certain amount of time they might be with Stephen for you know, six months or a year, or they might be seeing him through that stage of his schooling or be offering him a bit of support at that particular time because it's available. But you're the one that has to stitch them all together and make that sort of joined up story that will be for the benefit of of Stephen in the long term. So you have to, again, you have to fight for that, that, um, you know, you you know what, what your child needs and how it all joins up together so it's it's worth you know remembering that you can go into those situations and and again ask for what you need not just get sort of told what they're able to offer you yeah that's true i think it can be hard though when the system sometimes seems set up to keep you away from the kind of support that you might need yeah and that the professionals sometimes and i don't want to tar everyone with that brush because 
loads of people are working incredibly hard in incredibly under-resourced ways and providing amazing things. And I, I do want to acknowledge that, but sometimes it feels as though the first people that you have to do battle with is the people who should be offering the support. You're attending meetings to plan support, but actually it doesn't go, what do you need? Here it is then. It's you with a whole series of policies and bits of paperwork and bits of evidence yeah. attempting to argue what feels like a court case and on trial are your child's needs where you point at bits of paper and say, but you said here this, but this was said, but my child has the right to this, but what's happening with this? And it does you know, you could almost do with a professional administrator to back you up in some yeah. of this stuff with every bit of paper that's ever generated and every conversation that was had and then not followed through and so on. Yeah. And I, I do think that can be quite exhausting. Do you feel that you're out the other side of that? I mean, your child is a young adult. And so I guess, you know, we don't all graduate childhood on our 18th birthday. And, and I just wonder how that support has changed really in your role, how it's changed to be a parent of a young adult? It's it's still around. So we still get involved in helping Stephen again apply for jobs and to find training courses that he wants to do. So we are still very much there. And I think one of the things that then does change um, once Stephen turned 18 is that um, and we had this just uh, last year with the course that he was on so he he joined a um, a course that he wanted to do which was great but he potentially you know still does need uh, some degree of support on some things and so I spoke we will still speak to the people that organize those types of courses and see then how much they might be willing to speak to us but of course as soon as he turns 18 the response that we get back often is that we are just seen as very very overbearing parents who are yes. interfering in the lives of our child we're clearly not letting go and we're clearly just in the background um kind of molly coddling him yeah when they are saying but he's over 18 you know kind of we will deal with him and i mean you know as, as one example uh in terms of you know his level of communication um they often want to you know speak directly to him of course because he's over 18 he has every right to be talked to you know directly and communicated with directly and we are all for that but we also know that he may struggle to stay in touch with people sometimes and so if they do that there is probably a, a very high degree that they won't get any response and they won't get any communication at all and so that's often you know when we might be in the background but again we often have to slightly just take a deep breath say these things uh you know the person that might be talking to us is is only meeting us and is only meeting Stephen for the very first time so of course you know they might want to do it their way and explain you know why why they think that's best and I say and sometimes we do get a, a, a sense that um that the suggestion is that we are just interfering so we we sometimes leave them to it let them get a few months in and then um we often then get people coming back to us saying actually um I think you did make a good point we can see what you meant now would you <laughs> we, we would actually quite like your your help is that okay <laughs> we'll be like yes of course that would be absolutely fine <laughs> we will know and and we do we, we can kind of laugh about those things a little bit more now because we've been through it many times but it can also be incredibly frustrating and you, you just think you know again people don't always uh listen and they have their own 
perspectives on things. Uh, but yeah, you, you you do get used to it. But yes, it does it does continue. And also with Stephen now, in he he's working and in his workplace. But we are absolutely delighted that the people that he worked with again are they're a great team. They have very good uh, management feedback and things like that. So he's he's getting a huge amount from from working. Uh, and, and all the people that he's meeting through work. So that's fantastic. That's really fantastic. I think you do have to, as an adoptive parent, embrace being that parent, in quotes, because none of us want to be yep. that parent, the one no. who is up at school every two minutes going, my child is unique and special for the following reasons. Exactly. And yet I think you just have to embrace, yeah, fine, I am that parent. That's now me. That's my role. You know, cower when you see me coming because I am that parent. And it's horrible and it's exposing. But you kind of just have to do it because otherwise you're not going to get anywhere. Yeah, yeah. No, I, to- I totally agree. And um, yeah, again, you have to, and sometimes it, it, you can get more quickly to the point than than you can with other people. And that, again, as you, you know, we've already said, it is such a joy when you do meet people who get it, in inverted commas, and you approach a, a scenario and they, they have, they do genuinely have experience um, of adopted kids or, or certain scenarios and they genuinely will just say no this is okay uh, we're used to it we're going to do this we're going to do that we'll keep in touch with you it's the communication often with you know which is is the area uh, now that we find very refreshing when people are just very open and they are usually the people who are very good at what they're doing um, because they're very confident about their own knowledge I think sometimes they say it's it's harder if you meet people who are less experienced because they're not then as open because they're they're potentially not as confident about about what they're doing yes i agree with that um and so with the benefit of a lot of hindsight given that you are you know one of the people who adopted very very first i'm just really interested in what advice you would give for people um perhaps starting out or right in the middle of it or dealing with a young adult child you know what's what are your top tips and advice really for the rest of us yeah gosh um (laughs) Yes, I mean, obviously, yeah, that, I mean, that's a huge question. So I would say, I mean, obviously, anyone who's in the process, um, at whatever stage, really, everyone will know how tough it is. It, it is incredibly tough, and it comes with lots and lots of ups and downs. Um, but I would just, yeah, just say, you know, keep keep going. I think at some of the the points that we found things toughest is when we've reached out to organisations, you know, like yourselves and others, um, to actually get in the room with people who do appreciate what you're going through and do understand what you're going through and go and talk to them and feel like you're getting support. So do lean on those organisations. We found that incredibly helpful uh, because otherwise you can sometimes get a bit uh, sort of tunnel visioned and just really stuck uh, where if, if you're going through a particularly difficult uh, period of time for whatever reason. So, you know, do keep connecting with people um, and then, it, you know, hopefully you do get through those and genuinely, I mean, f- from our perspective, certainly we have found um, slowly by slowly things, you, you have tough, tough times, um, but it all adds up and you do, you do get there and uh, say we're, 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 we're in a great position with Stephen at the moment and um, I'm very grateful for that and that that's uh, fantastic. So the hard work does pay off. <laughs> what a lovely ending. Thank you so much. Now I'm joined by Jackie from the New Family Social Board of Trustees, who's brought some questions along from listeners. Hi, Jackie. What questions have you got? Hi, I've got the first question um, I will just read out. How has adoption changed over the years? 
Yeah, it's a good question. And it's so different so quickly. So it was a 2002 act that allowed um, unmarried couples to adopt, which meant that same-sex couples could adopt. Because prior to that, you had to be married to adopt as a couple and same-sex couples couldn't marry. But although the Act of Parliament had 2002 written on it, it didn't come into force until the very end of 2005, which meant 2006 was the first time that same-sex couples were really starting to ring up some agencies and go through the process. Now, of course, Lynn from the podcast went through it before that, but that's why she was talking about having to adopt as a single person with her partner as like a second adult in the household, but not legally as a second parent at the time. Yeah, and I think I think um, the process has got is much shorter than it was um, that uh, probably when Lynn was going through the process as well. Do you think that's correct? Oh, absolutely, because there were new timescales introduced, and you would hear sometimes in the past of adoptions, you know, people applying to adopt, and sort of three years later they were still being assessed and so on, and that's just unheard of now really except in extremely unusual circumstances and often that would be you know for example if the family had uh you know some sort of family crisis or something during it might delay but otherwise it just would never be running for that long anymore and how's covid affected the process has it affected it at all or or not I mean, it certainly has a bit more practically, really. It has some in terms of timescales as well, but also just in terms of practicalities, of course, a lot of assessments being done online. Some prep groups are being done online. Um, Panels are certainly being done Mm -hmm. online. I think as well, when we're looking at how it's changed over the years, we've got to look at the accessibility for LGBT plus people. And I think now panels are seeing loads, particularly of lesbian and gay couples, And more and more bisexual people, more and more trans people, more and more non-binary people. Um, But I think there's a way to go still with some parts of our community. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. Thanks for that. And I've got a question here as well, um, which is, do you think that having queer parents is an issue for kids these days? I think it's the issue is not so big these days, I would say, from my own personal experience. I think research shows that children... um, are able to explain the different families more. I mean, certainly children at schools have far more um, unconventional or uh, families now than they had before. So I think it is an easier thing for um, queer parents. But there's also quite a lot of barriers to break down in terms of the children actually having to explain their family to certain people who don't know a lot about it. So having to explain the difference is 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 quite a big thing at the moment. But looking back on the whole, I think. Um, that it has changed for, for queer parents and it is um, we're on the radar and we're being seen so I think that can only be a good thing. I think you're right and also you know if you think back to when you were at secondary school when I was at secondary school yeah. section 28 had been brought in which banned well effectively banned the discussion of in quotes mm-hmm. homosexuality in schools you know mm-hmm. which was what they'd phrased it as and so it wasn't just that it wasn't talked about it was the teachers felt that it couldn't be talked about. So now it surprises me when I walk through secondary schools and things, and I don't walk through lots of secondary schools just for clarity, but when I walk through the occasional secondary school, um, you know, there's posters up, there's rainbow flags. Um, I went into a school the other day and the head teacher was wearing um, a rainbow ribbon. And it's a bit, a bit gobsmacking, really. I think sometimes when we imagine what life's like for kids in schools now, we're imagining our imagining ourselves yeah. 25 I, years I ago or more. I get overexcited when I see a poster of an LGBT 
organization in, in, in schools which i don't visit a lot either but on the odd occasion um i do um, get overexcited but it's it's a great thing to see that um we're represented in, in secondary schools yeah it is and i think certainly and again this is anecdotal and it's my own personal experience but you know my kids are really their friends are excited about the fact that my kids have got queer parents it's not it's not a weird thing for them. They think it's kind of cool. You know, I've got to be cool somehow. It might as well be that, I guess. Yeah, it's a shame our own kids don't find it a, a cool thing. Yeah, they just think we're sad no matter what we do. <laughs> we are cool, though. They should think themselves lucky. <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much for bringing along the questions. No worries. Thank you. I'd like to thank my guest today, Lynn, and the listeners who sent in their questions via the contact form on our website. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Follow us on Twitter at LGBT Adopt Foster and on Facebook, search New Family Social, all one word. Visit our website at newfamilysocial.org.uk. Adoption, Fostering and Tea is produced by New Family Social. The presenter was me, Tor Doherty, with music from Matt Doherty. The producer was John Jenkins. We'll be back next time with more guests and more tea.